Chapter 18 of Tell It All by Fanny Stenhouse. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. My First Impressions of the City of the Saints With the eager observation of a woman who has a great personal interest at stake, I took note of everything in Zion which was new to me, and especially all that related to the system of plural marriages, and all my worst fears were abundantly realized. Although I had looked at the dark side of Mormonism, and had pictured with horror the life of women in polygamy, there were nevertheless some truths which broke upon my mind with painful effect. In England we had heard so frequently from the lips of the apostles and elders that not only was polygamy contrary to the teachings of Joseph Smith, but that it was utterly unknown in Nauvoo during the prophet's lifetime. Directly when the revelation was published, we of course knew that if it really proceeded from Joseph, he could not have been so innocent of polygamy as we had been taught. But I was hardly prepared to meet several of his wives out in Utah, and yet almost the first thing that I heard was that there were living in Salt Lake City ladies well known and respected who had been sealed to the prophet. This I afterwards found was true. The Mormon colony in Salt Lake City had at first to contend with all those difficulties and submit to all those privations which beset the path of all new settlers in a strange country. Until very recently the greater number of the dwellings were small and low, like so many little huts, and not infrequently you might see a row of these huts with one window and a door to each, and inside a wife, a bedstead, two chairs, and a table, with poverty to crown the whole. But even then might be seen in the laying out of the streets, and in the other arrangements, the germs of a great city. The roadways were broad, and the sidewalks convenient, and provision was made more with an eye to the future than to present necessity, for a great depth in the measurement of the houses and blocks. Down the sides of the streets flowed a sparkling stream, the water of which was brought from the mountains for the purpose of irrigating the gardens in the city. And as far as they possibly could, the settlers marked out and planned a capital worthy of that name for the Mormon people. When I arrived in Salt Lake City, a great many improvements had been effected, and expecting as I did that this would be our future home for many years, perhaps for life, I was interested in everything that I saw. But even then, in merely taking a walk about the city, I met with evidences of the degrading teachings of polygamy, and I saw that little deference was paid to the women. They were rudely jostled at the crossings, and seemed to be generally uncared for. Since the completion of the railway, and the constant influx of Gentiles, this, of course, has not been noticeable. The city is built on a slope, formed by a bend in the mountain range. Brigham Young's house is on the northern side, and has a commanding prospect. The tabernacle and tithing office are in the same street. The tabernacle is a plain-looking building entirely devoid of any architectural beauty. It stands in the block where the temple, 
which has been building for the last quarter of a century and is now only a few feet above ground, is waiting to be finished. Nearly twenty-six years ago Brigham wrote to Orson Spencer, the president of the Mormon Church in England, urging him to gather up as much tithing as he possibly could for glass, nails, paint, and so forth, to assist in building up the temple of the Lord in the valley of the Great Salt Lake. A large sum of money was collected, and millions have been raised by tithing and by other means. But there has been no one hitherto with courage and authority sufficient to demand of the prophet an account of those funds and the interest and compound interest which should be accruing thereunto. The first Sunday I went to the tabernacle I was greatly amused at the way in which some of the sisters were dressed. Quite a number wore sunbonnets, but the majority wore curious and diverse specimens of the milliner's art relics of former days. Some wore a little tuft of gauze and feathers on the top of the head, while others had helmets of extraordinary size. There were little bonnets, half-grown bonnets, and grandmother bonnets, with steeple crowns and fronts so large that it was difficult to get a peep at the faces which they concealed. As for the dresses, they were as diversified as the bonnets some of them presented a rather curious spectacle. I noticed two young women who sat near me. They were dressed alike in green calico sunbonnets, green calico skirts, and pink calico sacks. On inquiring who they were, I was told that they were the wives of one man, and had both been married to him on the same day, so that neither could claim precedence of the other. Outside of Utah, such a thing would seem impossible, but so many of the young girls at that time came out to Zion without father or mother or anyone else to guide them, and left to their own inexperience and afraid to disobey counsel, it is no wonder that they soon yielded to the universal custom. The two young women whom I have mentioned did not appear to me to be overburdened with intelligence. They looked like girls who could be made to believe anything, but after that I met with two well-educated women, who, like these foolish girls, thoughtlessly tried the experiment of two or more, marrying the same man on the same day, agreeing with their Lord that that would be the best way to preserve peace in their household. But they were terribly mistaken, and even before the marriage day was over, the poor bewildered husband had to fly to Brother Brigham for counsel. The tabernacle services seemed to me as strange as the women. There was no regular order in conducting the proceedings, but the prominent brethren made prayers or sermons as they were properly called upon to do so. The sermons would be more properly called speeches. They were nothing but a rambling, disconnected glorification of the saints, interspersed with fearful denunciations of the Gentiles, and not infrequently a good sprinkling of words and expressions such as are never used in decent society. More unedifying discourses could hardly be imagined. As for the spirituality and devotional feeling which characterized our meetings in England, they were only conspicuous by their absence, 
and many devout saints have told me that when they first went there, before the erection of the great organ, the free and easy manners of the speakers, and the brass band which was then stationed in front of the platform, made them feel as if they had come to witness a puppet show, rather than to attend a religious meeting. There was one lady at the tabernacle service whom I regarded with considerable interest. This was no other than Eliza R. Snow, one of the prophet's wives. I was told that she was the first woman married in polygamy after Joseph Smith received the revelation, and I believe it was so. People who lived in Nauvoo, respectable people, and not one or two either, have assured me that for four years before Joseph is said to have received the revelation, he was practicing polygamy, or something worse, and that the revelation was given to justify what was already done. After it was given, or said to be given, Joseph and his brother Hiram cut off from the church more than one person for preaching it, and nine years more passed away during which the Mormon elders, everywhere, most emphatically and solemnly denied it before it was publicly avowed. However this might be, it is generally understood that Eliza Snow was the first plural wife of the prophet, and I was told by a lady from Nauvoo that Joseph did not care much for her, but that she was getting to be quite a querulous old maid, and he married her to keep her tongue quiet. If that is true, she has entirely changed her tactics since she left Nauvoo, for her principal occupation at the present time is converting rebellious wives to obedience to their husbands, and convincing young girls that it is their duty to enter into polygamy. Unhappy husbands derive great consolation from her counsels. In matters of religion, she is a perfect fanatic and in connection with the female relief society she reigns supreme but otherwise there are many excellent traits in her character and i could tell of many acts of loving-kindness and self-denial which she has performed and which will surely have their reward she is said to have been tolerably good-looking when young but in appearance there is nothing now to distinguish her as the chief poet of the Mormon Church, and as the representative of Eve in the mysteries of the endowment house, she enjoys a reputation such as would be impossible to any other woman among the saints. Another of the late Joseph's wives is a Mrs. Dr. Jacobs, who was actually married to the prophet while she was still living with her original husband, Jacobs. Under the same circumstances, she married Brigham Young after Joseph's death. For some time her husband knew nothing of the whole affair, but Brigham very soon gave him to understand that his company was not wanted. The sister of Mrs. Jacobs, a Mrs. Buell, was another of Joseph's wives, and she married the Apostle Heber C. Kimball, but does not appear to have made a very good bargain. Besides these, there is another lady, a Mrs. Shearer, or as she is familiarly called, Auntie Shearer. She is in every respect a unique specimen of womanhood, tall and angular, with cold yet eager gray eyes, 
a woman of great volubility, and altogether grim-looking and strong-minded. She was an early disciple, and is said to have sacrificed everything for Mormonism. She lived in Joseph Smith's family, and of course saw and heard a great deal about polygamy, and at first it was a great stumbling-block to her. She was, however, instructed by the immaculate Joseph, and so far managed to overcome her feelings as to be married to him for eternity. Like the others, she is called Mrs., and I suppose there is a Mr. Shearer somewhere, but upon that point she is very reticent. Her little lonely hut is filled with innumerable curiosities, and little knick-knacks which some people are forever hoarding away, in the belief that they will come into use some day. She is a woman that one could not easily forget. She wears a muslin cap, with a very wide border flapping in the wind under a comical-looking hood, and is easily recognized by her old yellow marten fur cape and enormous muff. Her dress, which is of her own spinning and weaving, is but just wide enough, and its length could never inconvenience her. Add to these personal ornaments a stout pair of brogues, and you will see before you Auntie Shearer, one of the prophet's spiritual wives. I may as well explain what is meant by spiritual wives and proxy wives. Marriage is contracted by the Gentiles or by Mormons in accordance with Gentile institutions are not considered binding by the saints. That was partly the cause of my indignation and the indignation of many another wife and mother. We were told that we had never been married at all, and that our husbands and our children were not lawfully ours. Surely that was enough to excite the indignation of any wife, whatever her faith might be. For a marriage to be valid, it must be solemnized in the endowment house in Salt Lake City, or the persons contracting it can never expect to be husband and wife in eternity. Should the husband die before he reaches Zion, and if the wife loves him sufficiently well to wish to be his in eternity, when she arrives in Salt Lake City, if she receives an offer of marriage from one of the brethren and does not object to him as a second husband in this world, she will make an agreement with him, and she will be his wife for time, but that in eternity she and all her children shall be handed over to the first husband. A woman thus married is called a proxy wife. It can well be understood that if the lady had lost her youth and good looks, there would be very little chance of her husband seeing her again in eternity, as there would not be too many willing to stand proxy for him, and in that case he would have to depend upon the generosity of friends. Now, spiritual wives are of two classes. The one consists of old ladies who have plenty of money or property, which of course needs looking after, and generous elders marry them and accordingly look after that same property, and the owner of it becomes the elder's spiritual wife. She will only be his real wife in eternity when she is rejuvenated, 
the prospect of which rejuvenation is i suppose very fascinating to some men for i have known quite youthful elders who displayed their self-sacrificing spirit by marrying spiritually very old but very wealthy ladies the other kind of spiritual wife is one who is married already but who does not think that her husband can exalt her to so high a position in the celestial world as she deserves perhaps some kind brother who takes a great interest in her welfare has told her so she then is secretly sealed to one of the brethren who is better able to exalt her perhaps to this same brother and in the resurrection she will pass from him who was her husband on earth to him who is to be her husband in heaven if she has not done so before this is what is meant by proxy and spiritual wives i think it will be evident even to the dullest comprehension that under such a system the world the flesh and the devil are far more likely to play a prominent part than anything heavenly or spiritual all this is so repugnant to the instincts and feelings of a true woman that i feel quite ashamed to write about it and yet the working out of this system has produced results which would be perfectly grotesque were it not that they outrage every ordinary sense of propriety let me give an example one of the wives of brigham young a mrs augusta cobb young a highly educated and intelligent boston lady with whom i am intimately acquainted requested of her prophet husband a favor of a most extraordinary description she had forsaken her lawful husband and family and a happy and luxurious home to join the saints under the impression that brigham young would make her his queen in heaven she was a handsome woman a woman of many gifts and graces and brigham thoroughly appreciated her but she made a slight miscalculation in respect to the prophet he cares little enough for his first wife poor lady and few people who know him doubt for a moment that he would unqueen her and cut her adrift for time and eternity too if his avaricious soul saw the slightest prospect of gain by doing so he did not care for her but he would never allow himself to be dictated to by any woman so when the lady of whom i speak asked him to place her at the head of his household he refused she begged hard but he would not relent then finding that she could not be brigham's queen and having been taught by the highest mormon authorities that our saviour had and has many wives she requested to be sealed to him brigham young told her for what reason i do not know that it really was out of his power to do that but that he would do the next best thing for her he would seal her to joseph smith so she was sealed to joseph smith and though brigham still supports her and she is called by his name on earth in the resurrection she will leave him and go over to the original prophet the reader will certainly be shocked at this terrible burlesque of sacred things 
but I felt it my duty to state the truth and place facts in their right light. It is not generally known that the Mormons are taught that the marriage at Cana of Galilee was Christ's own nuptial feast, that Mary and Martha were his plural wives, and that those women who in various parts of the New Testament are spoken of as ministering to him stood to him in the same relation. Malicious first wives, especially if they are rather elderly themselves, frequently call the proxy wives fixins, and the tone in which some of them utter the word is in the last degree contemptuous. These poor fixins are seldom treated as real wives by the husband himself. He may think sufficiently well of the proxy wife to make her his for time and to raise up children to his friend, as the elders say, but he never forgets that in eternity she will be handed over to the man for whom he has stood proxy, and he expects that she also will bear that in mind and do all she can for her own support, and never complain of his want of attention to her. Some men, after having married a young proxy wife, have become so enamored that they grew jealous of the dead husband, and have tried to get the wife to break faith with him, and be married to them for eternity as well as time. This was certainly rather mean. Very few Gentile husbands would fret themselves about possibilities in the world to come if in this world they had the certainty of enjoying the undivided affections of their wives. Mormon husbands are so influenced by their religion that they neither act nor think like other men. I am thinking of one wretched family that I knew soon after I went to Utah. There was a man and his wife and four children all living together in a miserable, poverty-stricken hut. I had heard that the man was paying attentions to a young girl with a view to making her his second wife, and I frequently watched the first wife as she went in and out, doing her chores, and wondered how she felt about it. The poverty of the man, of course, was of no consequence. Living in the primitive style in which necessity then compelled the saints to live, one or even half a dozen extra wives, made very little difference, and Brigham and the leading elders have always represented it as a meritorious act, for the young especially, to build up the kingdom, without regard to consequences or the misery of bringing up a family in a destitute condition. I never can see children without loving them, and in this case it was not long before I contrived to make acquaintance with the little ones. One day, while I was talking to them, the mother came out. She seemed pleased to see me, for she had heard of me that I was not too strong in the faith, and she told me that her husband had said, in speaking of such women as myself, who did not like the celestial order of marriage, that their husbands ought to force them right into it, and that would show what they were made of. If they were true-hearted women seeking their husband's glory and exaltation in the world to come, they would bear it well enough, and if not, the sooner it killed them the better, for if they were dead their husbands could save them in the resurrection, but if they lived they would only be an encumbrance. 
This, I found, was the general opinion among the Mormon men. Even in England, the American elders taught us that the man was the head and savior of the woman, and that the woman was only responsible to her husband. It was necessary, we were told, that the woman should keep in favor with her lord, otherwise he might withdraw his protection, and refuse to take her into the celestial kingdom, in which case, when she got to heaven, she would only be an angel. To be an angel is not considered by the saints to be by any means the highest state of glory. Those who do not obey the celestial order of marriage will, like the angels, neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be located, the men in one place and the women in another, and will serve as slaves, lackeys, and bootblacks to the saints. Brigham Young once publicly said of a certain President of the United States that he would clean the boots of the Mormon leaders in heaven. He did not say this as a figure of speech, but meant it literally. Those who have obeyed the gospel of the new dispensation, but who have failed to enter into polygamy, will be as upper servants, but the rebellious, the vile apostates, and the wicked Gentiles will join the angels and do all the drudgery for the men of many wives. Thus I learned in Zion that my youthful notions about the glory of the cherubim were quite a mistake, and that it was not such a fine thing to be an angel after all. But I have run away from my story, and had almost forgotten my poor acquaintance. She was a woman who was likely to preserve a painful place in the memory of anyone who saw her. Her face was as pale as death, and her jet-black eyes glistened with an unearthly luster. It was easy to perceive that she was very unhappy, although she tried hard to exhibit a cheerful disposition. And when our conversation turned to that subject which, to women here, is all-absorbing, the nervous twitching of her pale face showed how deeply painful such thoughts were to her. She told me that her husband was soon to be married to a young girl, about fourteen years of age. "'Do you see,' she said, "'that he is building for her?' And sure enough he was, at odd hours, adding another hut to the miserable hovel in which they already lived, and thither, when it was finished, he intended to take his bride.' As I looked at the poor wife, I felt little doubt that ere that time came, her troubles on earth would have ended, and her little ones would be motherless. The Mormon women, as well as the Mormon men, are noted for attending to their own business. They do not care to tell their sorrows and trials to strangers, or to people who are not of their own faith. In this way, visitors to Salt Lake, who have gone there with the intention of writing up the saints in the newspapers or in a book, have generally been misled. My own experience as a Mormon woman leads me to form anything but a flattering opinion of the Mormon stories told by Gentile pens. The following instance will show that the sisters are not quite so free in giving their experience as some writers would suggest. One day, while passing through the city, 
I saw a young woman running across the road with a little child in her arms. The child was crying piteously, for the water was running from its clothing, and I saw in a moment that it had fallen into the stream which ran in front of the house. I followed to see if I could be of any assistance, but fortunately found that the little creature was not seriously hurt, but would soon recover from the fright and cold. I helped the mother to change its clothing, and while she was lulling her baby to sleep we entered into conversation. At first she appeared to be very shy of me, and avoided speaking of anything in the slightest degree personal. But growing more interested, she said at last, "'Are you a Mormon?' "'Certainly,' I answered. "'But why do you ask me?' "'Because,' she said, "'we have had one or two Gentile women among us, and they go round among our people and question the women, and get them to tell their troubles, which God knows are heavy enough.' and then they go and write about it, and Brigham Young finds it out, and their husbands are called to account for allowing their wives to speak to the Gentiles. You are sure you are a Mormon, she added, and you are not deceiving me. I'm sorry you should think such a thing, I said, but if you suppose I would deceive you, I will not trouble you with my company, and I rose up to leave. Do not go yet, she said, and pray forgive me if I have wounded your feelings. It is simply the fear I have of getting into trouble. Brigham Young and the elders have frequently told us to have nothing to do with the Gentiles, for they are enemies to the kingdom of God, and are seeking our overthrow. And I suppose it is true. How long have you been here? I asked. Over two years, she replied, and it seems almost twenty. Time has passed so slowly. I left father and mother, sisters and brother for the gospel's sake, and I do not regret it, because it is right. But it was a very great sacrifice to make. Yet I believe that God blesses us for the sacrifices we make, and I shall get my reward. You have it already, I said, in that pretty child on your knee, and your husband, I hope, is a good man and kind to you. Yes, she answered. My child is a very great source of happiness to me, and I love my husband very much, but... Hesitatingly. Are you in polygamy? No, not yet, but I do not know how soon my husband may take it into his head to get another wife. Are you first wife? She asked. Yes, I replied, and I suppose you are also? No, I am third wife, she said. I wish I were first wife. But why, I suggested, do you wish that? If polygamy is the true order of marriage, I do not see that it makes much difference whether one is the first or the twentieth wife. Oh, dear, yes, she replied. It does make a great deal of difference. For the first wife will be queen over all the others and reign with her husband. If I had known that before I was married, I should have made my husband promise to place me first. Men can do that if they like. But do you think you would be doing right in trying to gain the position of first wife in that way? Why not, she said. Didn't Jacob obtain his brother's birthright by deception? And was he ever punished for it? 
do you think that Brother Brigham, notwithstanding that he is the inspired servant of God, could have obtained his position and all his money by simple, honest dealing? If you think so, I don't, and it is just as proper and right for us women to secure a position for ourselves by such means as it is for Brigham Young, and the end justifies the means. If that is so, I said, it is a wonder to me that any woman should consent to become second, third, or fourth wife, seeing they cannot be queens. I can see that you have not yet had your endowments, she said, or you would understand more about these things. But as you are a good Mormon, I can speak freely to you. You see, it is not always those who are first wives in this world who will be first in the celestial kingdom. It all depends upon the amount of sacrifice the wife is capable of making for her husband, her faithfulness to him, and the number of children she has borne him. If she pleases him in every particular, and is good, patient, and above all things obedient to all his wishes and commands, then she is almost certain to be made queen, unless the first wife is just as good. And then I don't know how they would fix that. And so you see it is safer to be first wife at once. Well, but, I asked, knowing all this, I am surprised that you consented to be third wife. But I did not know it then, she continued. My husband told me that all the wives were queens, all equal, and he says so still when I talk to him about it. But he can't deceive me. I have spoken to some of the old Nauvoo women who know all about it, and they tell me that all the polygamic wives will be subject to the first wife. But the first wife, having suffered the most, will be the one who has gone through the fire and been purified and found worthy. But do you think that your husband would wish to deceive you about such an important matter? I said. Wait till you have lived a little longer here, she replied, and you will be able to answer that question yourself or else your experience will be very different from that of the rest of the people here. Just then the husband made his appearance and put an end to the conversation. He was a tall, dark-looking man with gray hair, old enough to be her father. He appeared to be well-educated and to have seen better days, though everything about their home indicated poverty. The room in which we were sitting had no carpet on the floor. There was a plain white pine table in the middle, a small sheet-iron stove, four wooden chairs, a small looking-glass, and some cheap pictures. This was the sitting-room for the whole family, three wives, eleven children, one husband. He asked me if I had seen the rest of the family. I replied negatively, and he said he would see if any of them were about. Presently he returned accompanied by an elderly woman whom he introduced as Mrs. Simpson. Then came another not quite as good-looking as the first, but a great deal younger, and he introduced her as my wife Ellen. And this one, he said, turning to the one with whom I had been conversing, is my wife Sarah. Don't you think I have got three fine-looking women? Then, after a pause, he added, and they are just as good as they are good-looking. 
good, obedient wives. I have no trouble with them. My wishes are law in this house. Here you have a family in which the Spirit of God reigns. We are not rich in worldly goods, as you see, but we are laying up treasure in heaven. We all live in this little home of four rooms. My wife Ellen here has given up her room for a parlor for us all to meet together in, and she sleeps in a wagon box. It is not the most comfortable, but she never grumbles. Then here is our Sarah. We are obliged to humor her a little and give her a room all to herself. She is young and inexperienced and doesn't like to be put up with the inconveniences that the saints have to bear with. While old mother here has got to have half a dozen children in her room, but she never complains. Why did you not wait, I said, until you had a larger house? Then where would my kingdom be, he answered. Young men may wait, but old men must improve their time. There came in now a troop of children of all ages. They had been playing in the lot, were miserably clad, barefooted, and some looked gaunt and hungry. Manners to match. These, he said with all a father's fondness, these constitute my kingdom, and I am proud of them. I felt thankful that I was not destined to be queen over such a kingdom, wished them good-bye, and with a sad heart went home to my own darling little ones, not knowing what might be their fate. End of chapter 18